Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life When the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth almost 2,000 years ago, he said that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto them which are saved it is the power of God. There is power in preaching and teaching the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 12 at verse 32, And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. And so we preach the cross. Paul, again, writing to the church at Corinth, said we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for his sake. So let's think for a moment or two about the drawing power of the cross. The first thing that I want to call your attention to as we look at Matthew chapter 27, we're going to be focusing for just a moment or two on verses 26 through 32 as we consider the weight of the cross. When you and I think about the weight of the cross or the vexation of the cross, what we need to, what we need to see and understand is that Jesus paid a heavy price for our sins. Sometimes I think that what the Lord has done on our behalf may be lost on those of us who live in this generation. We are some 2,000 years removed from the death of Christ, and yet the Bible, in a very vivid way, describes for us the trial and crucifixion of Jesus. What did Jesus experience for us? What 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 did he face on our behalf. We talk about the agony of the cross, the pain of the cross. Well, Matthew provides for us insight into the weight, the enormous weight of the cross. And so there are several things I want to call your attention to as we think about the vexation of the cross or the weight of the cross. Look, if you would, first of all, in verse 26, the Bible says that he was scourged for us. In other words, in other words, they scourged the Lord Jesus Christ. The scourge is something that is, at least to my knowledge, is not employed in, in our society. It's not something that we hear a lot about. And yet in ancient times, during the days of the Roman Empire, the Roman Kingdom, the scourge was, was a very well, a very agonizing and brutal form of punishment. Historians indicate that when an individual was scourged, that they would literally lay bare the bones of the one who underwent the scourging process. A man would be stripped, and then they would take this leather whip. Sometimes there might be bones or pieces of metal or such, attached to that whip. 
And they would literally lay bare, lacerate the back and even the chest of the victim. Well, that's what Jesus experienced on our behalf. The Bible says that they scourged him. Look at verse 26. They released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now, Pilate, as you know, was in charge, at least at this point in time during the trial process. And so Jesus was delivered up to be scourged. And you can just imagine the blood that he lost, the pain and the agony of that inhumane form of punishment. But then also note, if you would, not only did they scourge the Lord, but the Bible says they stripped the Lord. In verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, that is, and gathered the whole garrison or cohort around him. And they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. Now what you need to understand is that during this process, they were trying to humiliate the very Son of God. To think that here was Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the very Son of Almighty God, being stripped, this scarlet robe that they put on him. I see it as something being done in jest, to mock him, if you please. But then also look at how they sneered at him. Note verse 29. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hell, king of the Jews, do you think that the Romans actually believed that they were in the presence of the king of the Jews? Do you think that they really understood the presence before whom they stood? They were standing in the presence of Jesus of Nazareth. They were standing in the presence of God incarnate. That is the only begotten Son of God. And they were mocking him, sneering at him. The Bible says in verse 30 that not only did they strip him, but they spat on him. In verse 30, then they spat on him. It would be hard for us to imagine how inhumane and cruel these people were to our Lord. No one has ever spat upon me. It may be the case that someone thought about doing that in my presence. But I've never been spat upon. I talked to some people on one occasion. As a matter of fact, a friend of mine said that they were out walking, or actually they were in, in the city of Nashville, and they were handing tracts out. And during the process of handing these tracts out, one or more people spat at them. Well, that's a very classless act. And the Bible says that these people on this occasion spat on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the text tells us that they slapped him or struck him. Note verse 30 again. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. And so... We talk about the vexation of the cross. What Jesus experienced for us, the trial itself, was nothing more, nothing short of a mockery. And yet, what, what had Jesus done? What had he done to deserve the ill treatment that he had received during the trial 
of Pilate? Well, the answer would be nothing. But then I want you to also think with me for a moment or two about the vicarious nature of the cross. We talk about the vexation of the cross, and in this particular point, we're emphasizing the weight of the cross, the enormity of the cross that stood before Jesus. When we talk about the vicarious nature of the cross, what we have to understand is, that, is this. Jesus literally became our substitute for sin. Note, if you would, verses 32 and 33. The Bible says, When they came out, they found a man of serene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull. So they come to Golgotha, they come to Calvary's hill, and on the road to Calvary, Jesus falls beneath the weight of the cross. And so they get this man by the name of Simon to bear that cross. When Jesus fell beneath the weight of the cross, he fell beneath the weight of our sins. I asked the question a moment ago, what sins had Jesus committed worthy of death, worthy of the treatment that had been inflicted upon him? The answer was nothing. And yet they were intent on putting the Son of God to death, and ultimately they would execute him on the cross of Calvary. But Simon bore that cross. Simon was bearing that wooden cross on behalf of Jesus because Jesus apparently did not have the physical strength and stamina to carry that cross to Calvary. But when we talk about the substitution of Christ on our behalf, the vicarious nature of the cross, we have to understand that every sin that has ever been committed was literally laid upon the back of God's Son. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah wrote some seven centuries before Jesus came to earth. And Isaiah said in chapter 53 at verse 6, they laid on him the iniquity of us all. You ever thought about the blackness and the darkness of sin? You know, sometimes when we talk about sin, we talk about it in a generic way. And we, maybe we talk about it in abstract terms. And maybe when we, when we think about sin and what Jesus did on behalf of the human family, we look at it from the, from the vantage point as he died for them. He died for others. He died for the world. Well, the fact of the matter is Jesus died for all. Every sin that has ever been committed. How would you like somebody to come into your spiritual closet and open that closet and let, let the world see everything that you've ever said or done in life? How would you, like you like to have that happen? You know, there are a lot of things that many of us are not proud of. When we think about Jesus going to the cross, what we have to understand is every act of adultery Jesus paid the price for. Every act of fornication, Jesus paid the price for. Every act of theft, Jesus paid the price for that. Every act of drunkenness, Jesus paid the price for it. Every act of murder. Think about all the murders that have been committed in our, in our world over the past year. Think about all the murder that has been all of the murders that have been committed since the very beginning of time. The very first murder that we read about in the Bible 
is recorded in Genesis chapter 4, the death of Abel at the hands of Cain. You and I need to understand that when Christ suffered on Calvary's cross, when he bore those sins on Calvary's cross, he was bearing the sins of those who murdered. You ever lied? You ever cheated? Have you ever been dishonest in your dealings with other people? Have you ever said something about another person you know you shouldn't have said, but you said that? Jesus paid the price for that. Let's talk about the sins in your closet and my closet. Let me tell you what, it's not very pretty. If the Lord were to, to just open that closet and throw the light of His Word on our lives, what would be seen? We talk about Jesus going to the cross. Jesus went to the cross for all of us. Paul said, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The Son of God had no sin, but He died for our sins. When Jesus died, it wasn't just for the sins of the world, it was for my sins and for your sins. It's a very personal thing. Were it not for the sinless Son of God bearing my sins on Calvary's cross, I would, as Paul said, have no hope. And I'd be without God in this world. Ephesians 2 verse 12. Jesus paid the price for every sin. Here's what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's why when Isaiah wrote some seven centuries before Jesus came to earth, he could say that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin that has ever been committed was hurled on the back of the Son of God. And I would just, I would just remind you that that includes your sins. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says again, Him who knew no sin, He became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Let's talk in the second place about the winners of the cross. You ever, you ever asked yourself, who were the winners of the cross? I mean, here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being put to death. Some 2,000 years ago, He was lifted up between two thieves on Calvary's hill. The Bible says in Luke 23, 33, when they came to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified Him, and the male factors of the thieves, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Jesus was put to death on that cross. Imagine if you can them driving the stakes into the hands and feet of the Son of God. The spear that pierced his side as John records in John 19 at verse 34. What about the victory of the cross? Who stood to gain from the cross? Who was, in essence, the victor on the cross? Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you'll read of the promised seed being given by Almighty God. And God said in the long ago that at the cross, the heel of Jesus would be bruised. But He said the head of the serpent would literally take a death blow. So who won at the cross? Well, number one, Jesus one at the cross. The Savior won. Why did the Savior win at the cross? Well, because He paid the price for our salvation. 
He fulfilled the will of God. In other words, he accomplished the will of his heavenly Father. You remember when Jesus was engaged during his earthly ministry? He said, my work is to do the will of him who sent me. In John 6, verse 38, he said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus came to finish the work of Almighty God. That work was, was in place before the world began. That plan was in place. When we talk about Christ and the church, we need to understand that both of those things are inseparably linked in the scheme of redemption. And God's scheme of redemption was to save the human family through His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, when Jesus was put to death on the cross, when He cried out, It is finished! Don't you know that those who stood at the foot of the cross, the enemies of Christ, they thought they won. Don't you know that those people in their heart of hearts, thought, that's the end of the story. One interesting sidelight, or sideline to the story. In verse 54, the Bible tells us that when Jesus was put to death and the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom, the centurion responded by saying, truly this was a son of God. It wasn't lost on, what, it wasn't lost on him, the events that occurred at Calvary. But I suspect that the enemies of Christ, those Jewish people and those Roman soldiers, they thought, look, this is the end. This is it. We have accomplished what we set out to do. And that was we put Jesus of Nazareth to death. Well, little did they know that the Son of God would come forth from the grave. Look over in chapter 28. In chapter 28, we read of the first day of the week, Jesus was put to death on Friday, very early on the first day of the week, we find those women, those women that had ministered to him during his earthly ministry coming to the tomb. And the Bible tells us that when they came to the tomb, they were amazed. Why do you think they were amazed? Well, look at verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Now listen to what he said. For he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Who was victorious on the cross? Who were the winners? Number one, the Savior was the winner. Why? Because he was raised from the dead according to to Matthew chapter 28. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness according to the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead on the first day of the week following His crucifixion is extremely significant in God's redemptive plan. It is it is. The cornerstone, if you please, wherein stands the Christian religion. 
If, if the resurrection of Jesus did not take place, then Paul said our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, and we are still in our sins, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, who were the winners? Number one, the Savior. Number two, the sinner. When we ask the question, who were the winners? Who were the winners from the cross? Let me tell you who the winners were. Not just Jesus, but we were. Were it not for the death of God's only begotten Son, as I said a moment ago, we would be without hope and without God in this world. Go back to Matthew chapter, 21, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. When the angel of the Lord announced to Joseph in a dream that Jesus would be born of the Virgin Mary, and he said, He shall save his people from their sins. Why did Jesus come to earth to save people from sin? Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man has come not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life as a ransom for the many. Here's what Jesus Himself said in Luke 19, verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Who won at the cross? You did. I did. We were winners. If Jesus had not fulfilled God's will in going to the cross, where would we be today? Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus prayed in the garden to His heavenly Father, the Bible says that three times Jesus prayed, not, well, three times Jesus prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. Jesus completely submissive to the will of His Father. What was that will? To die for sin. And so here's Paul in writing to the church at Rome, or to the saints of Rome, saying in Romans 5, verse 8, But God commendeth His own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I said that we were the winners at Golgotha, at Calvary. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. When it's all said and done, when you, when you get it down to the black and white, the bottom line is this. You and I are nothing more than sinners. And without the death of Jesus, we would be hopelessly lost forevermore. So we were, we were, we were a part of the package that won at Calvary. Number three, we talk about the weight of the cross, the winners of the cross, but the way of the cross. What do, you think, what do you think was the ultimate vision of the cross? Well, go back again and listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he said, The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Drop down and look at verses 19 and 20. In Matthew 28, we talk about the power of the cross. Isn't it something that 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived here on planet Earth, engaged in a ministry that lasted some three years, lived only 33 years here upon this earth, has since been seated at the Father's right hand. And yet since that day and time, the story of the cross has continued to be told. That says something about the power of the cross. Well, what, what was the vision? What was the purpose of the cross? Well, listen to what Jesus said 
Jesus is about to ascend to heaven. He's going to be seated at his Father's right hand. The church is going to be established. Individuals are, to, are going to become members of this body that he paid the ultimate price for. And so here are his instructions. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When we talk about the way of the cross, we sing the song, the way of the cross leads home. And really, that's, that's the gist of the whole idea here. The story of the cross, the way of the cross, it leads home. It leads us to Almighty God. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Jesus is our link to Almighty God. Why do you think he instructed his disciples, his apostles to go out and to proclaim this message to people? Because he understood, number one, if people are going to be right with God, they have to have pardon from sin. And the only way they can be pardoned from sin is by obeying this divine message. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, Mark tells us that he said, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. On Pentecost Day, some 3,000 souls enjoyed redemption from the bondage of sin. How many of those people do you think were present at the cross? When Peter preached on Pentecost Day, Luke tells us that he said, you men, of, you men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by many miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in your midst. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have crucified and slain. What did he do? He indicted them. He said, you have taken the Son of God and crucified and slain him. So what did people need? They needed pardon. They needed to be liberated from sin. Now, I said a moment ago that if the Lord were to throw the light of his word on our sin closet, what would he see? Well, there's some ugly things in our closets. There's some ugly things in our lives. And the hard truth of the matter is, none of us is perfect. All of us need the same thing. What is the same thing we all need? It's salvation. Without the Lord in our lives, we are miserably, hopelessly lost and dying in sin. And so Jesus said, what you need to do, those of you who are my disciples, you need to go out and share this message with others. When people respond to the gospel invitation, number one, they enjoy pardon, liberation from sin. Paul said, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. We enjoy peace with God based on Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. And so the power of the cross Look at somebody whose life, whose life is broken by sin, whose life is literally upside down because of a lifestyle that is foreign to what we read about in Scripture. When you see somebody like that, you see a candidate for the gospel of Christ. And so the drawing power of the cross, what's the drawing power of the cross? It's Jesus. That's the message that we preach and teach. Maybe you're here tonight, you've never responded to heaven's invitation. Maybe you're not a New Testament Christian. What would you need to do to become a child of God today? 
Well, first of all, you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. Then you, you would need to repent, to turn from a life of sin. Jesus said, except you repent, you'll all likewise perish, Luke 13, 3. And then confess his name before others, Romans 10, 9 and 10. The Bible says that we're then to be baptized or immersed in water so that our sins might be washed away, Acts 22, verse 16. Then we're to live faithfully until death. And the promise is the crown of life, Revelation 2, at verse 10. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life When the clouds unfold their wings of strife When the strong tides lift and the cables strain Will your anchor drift or firm remain We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Hi, I'm Mike Hickson. We hope you've enjoyed the Anchor the Soul radio broadcast. Our worship services at the Olive Branch Church of Christ begin at 10 a.m. each Sunday morning. Our Sunday evening service starts at 6 p.m. If you're in the Olive Branch area, we would love to have you visit with us. Services at the Olive Branch Church of Christ are streamed live over the Internet each week please visit our website for additional details. That website is www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Join us again next Sunday morning on this station at 8.30 a.m. for the Anchor of the Soul. This is a presentation of Spiritual Sword Media.